grab a Bible, open up to Psalm 90 today. This is, uh, we continue our summer psalms. Psalm 90 is like the Honus Wagner card of psalms. You know what that means, it's a rare baseball card. Uh, Honus, or, don't worry about Honus Wagner. Uh, Psalm 90, though, is uh, (laughs) a... Uh, the only psalm that was written by Moses, that's what makes it kind of a rare, unique psalm. Uh, most likely near the end of Moses' life, uh, after his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron have, have since died. Uh, and they're outside the, the promised land and uh, waiting to go in. Of course, Moses won't go with them, but uh, that's kind of the setting of what's going on here. Uh, we're going to read this passage like we did last week. We're just going to read the first two verses at first, and then we'll read each subsequent section as we get to it. That way it's fresh in your mind uh, rather than you trying to pull back from the very beginning of our times here. So let's, let's read Psalm uh, 90 verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Eternal Father, thank you for life. Thank you that we have breath in our lungs. Thank you for bringing us into your house today, for um, bringing us before your word and into the company of your people so that we might gain a better understanding of how we are to live this vapor of a life that you have given us. Lord, may our journey through Psalm 90 this morning recalibrate our living and our dying. May our hope and confidence in your steadfast love for us in the gospel give us life as it flows through us like blood through our veins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, Moses begins this reflection here, writing, uh, and again, he's writing to the Lord. This is a prayer. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And to call God a a dwelling place is different than to call him a refuge, like we've seen many times throughout the Psalms. Uh, A refuge is where we go when when things are trouble, when life's trouble. It's a a temporary place in in that sense when things aren't going well. But the place that you dwell is where you live, whether times are good or times are bad. And he's he's pointing this, that to God, you are the very place where we we dwell. You have been our dwelling place. On on some level, he's also confessing this idea that that we exist in God. Um, so it's a hard idea to get your head around, but uh, we exist absolutely in God. If God did not exist, we would absolutely cease to exist ourselves. It's an odd concept. I, it's trying to get my head around it. I know that uh, my son Beckham and I play this video game called Zelda, and the main character in there is this guy named Link, and he has this, this life of sorts, right? Uh, and yet, if he exists within this little bitty disc that goes into the Nintendo, and if that disc ceased to exist, so would our little guy and his en- entire life and every understanding of him. That's the, the closest I could get to trying to get my head around what this might be like. But, but, but for God to exist is the only reason that, that we can exist. And then in verse 2, he, he points to the foreverness of God. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. The way that we are eternal as humans is different than the way that God is eternal as God. We, we exist, and, and I had to check this out. I had to check with Alexi, and I checked with Stucky, too. You know, some math people. 
Uh, just to make sure that I had this correct, you can see it in your, your bulletin there. Uh, Stucky thought I was making some math joke, uh, and Alexia actually was helpful. <laughs> you see how it is, right? Uh, so we exist as, as humans in, in what in math is called a ray. Uh, and again, you see it there, there's a dot and an arrow going forward. The idea being that uh, we're formed in our mother's womb, and then from that moment in history, we exist and our soul is eternal, right? Our soul is eternal. Um, but, but it's a little tougher to get your head around the way that God has eternally existed. He exists as a line in the way that math puts it, uh, a line with arrows going forever in both directions. That's a hard concept to get your head around, that God has absolutely no beginning and no end, right? We can get the no end part, but the no beginning part just explodes our minds if we try to really think about it too long. That, that's what Moses is, is calling here, everlasting to everlasting, right? That's the arrow in both directions. And it is so hard to get your head around that because, because you eventually want to come to that question, but, but where did God come from, right? And there you've hit this, this human limitation that we can't answer that question. And, and that's okay because it is part of our, our, our human created limitation. It is part of the mystery of God. And, and that's okay. Um, but that's the, the eternity or the eternalness of God. And then as verse 3 begins here, you can see that there's this big contrast between God existing eternally and, and the way that our lives, at least as we know it, being very fragile, very temporary. There in verse uh, three through six, you can follow along as I read this. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but, ye but as yesterday when it is past, or, or as a watch in the night. You, you sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. And so while our, our bodies won't live forever as we know them, because death is absolutely inevitable. Absolutely inevitable. Just, just, just as God has said in, in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed that man to, uh, for, to, for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Or as God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.16, uh, this is right after the curse, part of it, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Here we find that, that famous statement, though, right? A thousand years is like yesterday for God. A, a thousand years is, is at least 40 generations of humans. You understand that? We're talking parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on. You're talking about 40 generations, and yet to God, we're told that's just a very short moment. That's the perspective of eternity. It, it's similar to the way that we might say, you know, to a billionaire... A thousand dollars is like a nickel. We're, we're talking about such different quantities here that it's, it's hard to, to really understand. And in other words, though, God has absolutely unlimited time, but, but you and I, we don't. Our lives are absolutely limited in the sense of this life in the flesh right now. And so Moses' point is that time goes quickly for men and for women, and, and the shortness of our life is what all the imagery here is pointing to after that. He talks about the grass, right? And in the ancient Near East, it would rain or dew in the evening, and that would give this, uh, cause the grass to flourish. It would look great in the morning, and by the evening, it would be withered and worn down by the sun. I, I tried to get my uh, mind to think, what is something in our culture that we see that? I look around. I, I couldn't find a, 
a, a whole lot looking around. The only thing that came to mind ever was the idea that uh, if you've ever cleaned a child's room for them in the morning, and then by evening looked at the room again, it's all destroyed. Um, just the quickness of something like that. Uh, and so then, this is, this is it. This is, it. It's a terrifying and wonderful thing for, for you and I to know how fragile life is. Terrifying and wonderful. Because if you, if you know, if you really know and feel the truth that you're going to die, then it forces us to, to evaluate life as we know it. It pushes you to a place uh, that nothing else, when you think you're just going to live forever, just does not take you there. As people, you know, we, we look out at the world. I know it can be difficult at times. We, we look at the many religions in the world. We can see suffering. We can see the uh, inequality of lifestyles all across the globe. And, and our brains just struggle to reconcile this in all of our understanding. The, and I find that so many people I talk to sometimes, these ideas can, can lead to, for someone to declare, you know, there is no God. There can't be a God because of this. And yet when I realize how finite and temporary I, I, I am, it kind of changes, you know. You, you, you step out of the judge's seat for a while. You, you, you climb down from that seat and you just let God be God. That's a hard thing for us to do as, as modern men and women in particular. When, when, when faith in Jesus is, is real, when you trust in what God has, has chosen to reveal into, in his word, when, when you understand this simple concept of I am not the creator, I am the created. When we can bow our heads under that, that makes a huge difference. O only then can we rest in the promise of, of the glorious eternal life, a real existence in a real paradise that is just too wonderful for our imaginations even to figure out. When we know that to be true, when, we, when, we, when the knowledge of our own death works to refocus our lives then in, in, in a better direction, boldness to speak of the goodness of God, uh, strength to patiently love our children, desire to serve our neighbors and our fellow Christians, not merely out of duty, but out of joy and actual desire to do so. These are the changes that begin to happen. This concept goes a little further there in verses 7 through 12. Let me read those to you. This will come to the end of our actual title of the sermon here. Um, and, and he just speaking here candidly about the lives of humans. Moses writes here, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the, the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We, we bring... Our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are, they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, so teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here he's reminding us, that death is not the natural order of things. It's not the way it should be. It's easy for us to forget that, that death is actually the result of sin in the world. Death's the result of, of Adam's sin, of all of humanity's sin, uh, of this rebellion against God. And, and again, it's important that we understand that death is judgment for sin. Not some weird side effect of it, but actual judgment on sin. That's why we see death here in relation 
to God's anger. That's the connection here. Why, why is he talking about God's anger? Because he wants you to understand that's, that's why your life is so frail. That's why death is coming. Physical death is part of God's judgment on sin, but, but so is eternal death, right? The, the wrath of God pouring out, the, the separation of God eternally. You, you understand that? He's saying here, listen, your, your greatest problem in your life isn't that your life is fragile. It's not that death is coming even. That's not your biggest concern. Your, your greatest problem is that you are a sinner. And so in death comes judgment of God. That's why in verse 8, there's that cringe-inducing statement. You have set our iniquities. That's sin. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There are no secret sins. I read a, a book recently that, that talked about BTK. He was a serial killer in Wichita during the late 70s and in the 80s. He was finally caught in 2005 after they, they used a DNA sample that his daughter gave while a student at K-State University here in town. Um, and, and so he's been in prison ever since. But for 30 years, this, this man hid his sin from his wife, and he hid his sin from his children, all of his co-workers, his friends. He was the president of his ELCA Lutheran Church in Wichita. Nobody suspected a thing from him. But, but his sin was never, ever hidden from God. He hid it from everybody else for years, but never hidden from God. Even if he had escaped judgment in this life, he would not have escaped the judgment of God. Now, I'm hoping, as I look around, I'm hoping that none of you are serial killers and are hiding it from me, uh, or the rest of us, right? Uh, but I know that there are things in your life that you probably wish would remain hidden. Lies you've told, decisions you've made, things in your past, whatever it might be, there's this tendency to want to hide uh, our sin. You see it from children at the youngest age. When they, when they do something, they try to hide it from their parents. We, we develop that almost, and a skill as we grow older, they're able to do that better and better, and yet... It's a terrible thing, right? Yeah, because we can't hide from God. Even your internal sins that no one else can see cannot be hidden from God. Sins like, like lust or hatred or, or envy and jealousy that you feel towards somebody. These things cannot be hidden from the Lord. Um, one of our, our children's babysitter years ago was, was playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with them. And he decided he was going to hide behind a, uh, a sheer, mostly see-through, uh, curtain on the window with his feet sticking out completely. And, and our kids thought it was hilarious because his hiding place was so ridiculous. He, you could see him. He's right there. Uh, that's the way it is when we try to hide our sin from God. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, no one thinks you're hiding. I mean, God can see right through that. You're likely familiar with, with the Hebrews 4.12. It's a verse that gets read often. It's beautiful. It reads, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Unfortunately, we, we quote that and we stop right there. You might be less familiar with the verse that comes after it. Hebrews 4.13. Listen to this. It says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You, you can't hide your sin, so don't. 
Don't, don't hide your sin. You, you take it to the Lord, confessing your sin, and, and trust in Jesus so that he can free you from, from this desire even to, to hide it, from the sin itself. You see, the, the theme of our short lives in this passage continues in verse 9 here as he uses this, this illustration we're all too familiar with. He, he says, our, our years come to an end like a sigh. Can we sigh together? This is a weird practice, right? Just take a breath. Do it again. This is not, you know, meditation here. But you, you get that idea. That, that is so quick. It, it comes and it goes. It's, it's immediate. It's even a short breath by all means. That, that's an image that he wants you to see, that, that life is that short. And it's such a beautiful thing that God in his word uses these things that are common. Because you, you read Psalm 90, you see this, and then you're going to find in your life, hopefully later, that someone in your family sighs. And, and there's that moment, oh, life is short. Especially when you realize that often we're sighing because of some frustration, right? The, some anger, some, something that's uh, eating away at us, just this... You know, there's that frustration and that memory that comes. Life is short. And then in verse 10, we're, we're given some life expectancy numbers. At the time period, 70 or 80, those were considered high for, for Moses' time. Uh, listen, life as you know it is the shortest part of your existence. This life, you know, the things we can collect, the, the things we can learn, the things we can do. In, in the realm of eternity, this is the shortest part of your existence because we, you know we live at the very most a hundred years in our current bodies and and then as verse 10 puts it we, we fly away um, and then we live forever I don't know that Moses fully understood the, the concept of what he's talking about there yet but it, but he certainly understood of, of going someplace else and then in verse 11 Moses is praying to God and he's saying God very few people actually consider you. Very few people actually consider your power and, and the wrath of your, your wrath against sin. And his point is that, that death cannot be avoided. And, and if it cannot be avoided, then we must prepare for it. Which brings us then to the high point of Moses' prayer there in verse 12, where, where he's saying to God, so teach us. This is a prayer. He's asking God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You understand that? So, somehow, our being aware of how short life is has this connection to us actually developing wisdom. There's a connection there that you've got to understand. So, so for most people, the thought of, of our own death is so morbid, it is so strange, it is so filled with grief and fear and anxiety that we do our best just to keep it out of our mind, push it away. Right? The, the thought of death comes to your mind and you think, ah, don't think about it, just watch the movie, just watch this, whatever it might be. Somehow get this idea out of my head. And I understand the temptation to do that. But, but do you see what God's teaching us to do is quite the opposite here in Psalm 90. What, what he's teaching us here is that you do yourself a great disservice if you won't think about your own death. To number your days then simply means to, to think about your death, think about how short they might be, to think that it might come, no matter how old you are, no matter what health you're in right now, it might come quicker than you think. 
And so the connection to wisdom then is this. When we think about our own death, it causes us to think about how we are living our lives today. Does this matter? That, that's how people respond to terminal illness. Um, suddenly that question, how should I spend the next six months? How should I spend the next three years, whatever it might be. But in reality, and this is, this is an important thing for us all to understand, in reality, every single one of us are, are terminal. We, we, we should be living as such. We don't know what it's called yet. We haven't been diagnosed with anything, but ultimately, death is your disease, and it's terminal. There is no avoiding it. The, the heart of wisdom he's talking about is a heart that, that knows how to live this life well. To live it well. We, we, we want to know that, right? We, will the Lord say to me the same thing that he said to, his, uh, to the servant in the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25, 21? You remember it there? Will, will he say to me, well done, good and faithful servant? You know that so well. The Apostle Paul was writing, wrote to Timothy, a, a young pastor, and, and near the end of Paul's life, he he writes to, to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. He gives this quick assessment of his life and his expectation in death. And he says this to him. He says, uh, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You, you hear how God, or how Paul, not God, how, how, how Paul evaluates whether his life was actually lived well. This is important because everyone's actually have some evaluation system, right? You, when you get reviewed at work or school or whatever it might be, like what, what are the standards that I'm really trying to aim for here? Here, though, what Paul does is it wasn't how successful his career as a tent maker was, right? I sold more tents than anybody. It wasn't something like that. It wasn't how much money he had amassed. It wasn't how many people he expects to show up at his funeral as if somehow that meant he, he had a meaningful life. It wasn't how interesting his vacations were or what life ex, uh, uh, experiences he was able to have in life. Those are all great things, but that's not the way that he's evaluating whether his life was well spent. What he said was, I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. And be careful you don't misunderstand that. The, the opposite of I've kept the faith is not I have lost my faith. The opposite of that would be I, I've not been faithful to the Lord. I, I've kept the faith. I have been faithful to the Lord. That's been his life pursuit. And, 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 and to some degree he's saying, yes, that's, that's been what's happened. The Lord has strengthened me to do that. And so Paul's counting his days and he's grateful that God has granted him the strength to be faithful for those years. And so then he, we, rather, gain a heart of wisdom by, by counting our days because it forces us to evaluate our lives in regard to being faithful to the Lord. Am I faithful to my Lord in, in the way that I speak to him in prayer? Am I faithful to the Lord in the way that I, I gather with his people to, to worship him on Sunday mornings and other times? Am I faithful to being generous? Am I faithful to my, my wife or my husband? Because that's a faithfulness of the Lord as well. Am I faithful to uh, disciple my children, teaching them to know the Lord as well? Am I spending my time in that? Am I faithful to God, to, to the way that I love my neighbor? Am I faithful even in the way that I enjoy God's creation, right? Good drink, good food, good company, all of those. Do I enjoy those good gifts of God with, with a heart of gratitude to God? Am I putting a priority on on what Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.18 calls the unseen things. There, there he says, For the things that are seen are transients. 
right? Everything you can see is transient. It's, it's passing by. But, but the unseen things, uh, but the things that are unseen are eternal, he says. That's a difficult thing to do, to make the priorities the things you can't tangibly collect, touch, improve, and use. But that's what he's calling for here. Does, does my actual life reflect the fact that this life will end and that eternal life with my Savior will follow and exist forever? <clears throat> Is that the way we're living our life? Let me stop here because if, if this all sounds a whole lot like a bunch of works and works and works and works, uh, rest assured that this last section is pointing our hearts back to the grace of God. He's not going to hold up anything, but he's going he's to fall on the mercy of the Lord here is what he's going to do. You can begin reading it. We see it there in verse 13, even the first one of this section. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. He, he, he's asked God to give relief to his people, to return, to, to come back to us from, from his anger. Right? Not because suddenly we're amazing people, but, but he's pleading on, on the mercy of God to come back to him from the judgment of their sin. You hear a similar thing here in verse 14. He says, Satisfy in the us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That steadfast love, the ESV does a great job of, of always adding the word steadfast there. And you know that it's coming from this, this Hebrew word that we've seen so often now, uh, hesed, that uh, it really is God's special covenant love. It is uh, exclusively for his covenant people, for Israel at the time, and for Christians who, whose faith is in Christ today. That's the kind of love they're, they're wanting to see satisfy them in the morning. In verse 15, he acknowledges that the affliction that they've experienced is a, a sort of discipline from the Lord. And, and he's asking that God would, would turn that into joy as, as they've now learned to be faithful to the Lord. And, and finally, we come to the end of the psalm in verses 16 and 17. They, they say this, Let your work be shown to your servants. And your glorious power to your children, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I mentioned at the beginning, but Moses is again imagining this next generation of Israelites, right? He can't go with them, but they're going to go into the promised land and enter that, what God had promised to them. And he desires what I hope that we desire. He desires to see God's kingdom established. Don't you long to see God's kingdom spread? I mean, you look at the world and we, we see suffering, right? But, and yet, don't you just long to, to see the light of the gospel shine into the darkness and, and to see unbelief become belief in the Lord, to, to see hopelessness become absolutely full of joyful hope? Isn't your desire that your, that your life and, and the things that you do in life actually matter, actually have meaning? Do you, do, do you believe, you know, that, uh, do you have that desire, rather, to, to be a blessing to others? Then pray. Pray for the Lord to establish your work. I, I think sometimes, particularly as Reformed Christians, there's this fear of asking God to, to establish the work of our hands. As if that somehow is against the sovereignty of God. You just do what you're going to do. I'll be over here. No, we, there's a prayer here of establishing uh, the work of our hands. And, and not just the big things, right? Don't just think huge uh, in this. Think small things as well. Don't, and what I mean is don't undervalue the true, the true discipleship of the people who live in your home. That's a big thing. 
But are you praying and asking God to establish the work of your hands in that? Don't, don't, don't undervalue service to others in the name of Christ or, or undervalue anything that's done for the glory of God or with the glory of God in mind. And, and in praying for God to establish the work of our hands, they, you know, he's acknowledging here that only God can actually make it fruitful. Okay? Um, you can plant all the crops you want, but really only God can make them grow. You can disciple your children in amazing, amazing ways, and you're called to by God, but only God can, can ultimately make that discipleship fruitful. You should make plans. You should work hard in business and in ministry in all areas of your life, you know, because crops that are not planted are not going to grow, for sure, apart from some really unique miracle that God does. But, but also ask the Lord's blessing in the, in the work of your hands, whatever it might be. What do we do with all this? Um, what do we do with this information? For, first, as part of a wealthy and secular society, you, you just got to admit that it's easy to forget that while life is short and often hard, uh, the death of our body is not the end of the story for us, for anyone. That's, that's changing your mind. We live in a secular society, but you're not a secular person. Your mind's been enlightened to know different than that, and, and so live different than that. You know, if your faith, though, is not in, in Jesus, that should scare you a bit. And, and by a bit, I mean more than anything else in the world. Um, and, and I say that. I know that sounds, that's, you know, cliche. That's what preachers say. But it really, it should. Um, that's what God's Word says. More, more than anything else, because you know, you know that your sin must be dealt with. You know that there is a court date that you cannot get out of coming your way. But if your hope is in Jesus, and thus you are united to him by faith, then you know that your sin has already been dealt with. It's already been dealt with on the cross, and that should be a great relief. Right? I know everyone has fears about the idea of death, but that is one of those truths, the gospel truth, that sinks into everything that we are. That should serve as this strong shield against the fears of death, for we know that our perfect home, the eternal life, that we all innately desire, right? Even people that will say, I don't think God exists or eternity exists will say, I, I wish that were true. We all have this innate desire for it, but, but, but for those who are in Christ, this is an absolute true reality. I also want to point back to Moses as an example here. Uh, the, the last we see of Moses, I don't know how much you know about his life, but in the Old Testament, uh, near the end of his life, he he goes up on Mount Nebo, and from Mount Nebo, he can look over the promised land. He can see this land that God has promised to his people and, and observe it, but he's not allowed to go into that. And, and God ends his life, and he's buried in an unknown valley nearby. And, and you look at that. If you know much, it's easy for us to look at his life and feel like that was absolutely unfair. Somehow God is unfair in this. When, when we read that, you know, you look at, at Moses' life, that, that he couldn't enter the promised land seems unfair uh, because you think about his sin. This is simple sin. It seems like no big deal to us. Nobody else was harmed by it. It's easy to try to push it off, right? What did he do? He, he was supposed to speak to a rock and water was going to come out of it to provide for, for God's people. Instead, he hits the rock uh, and he takes credit for, for making that happen. That's his sin. So taking credit and, and disobedience to God's actual command. Uh, and, and yet he's forbidden from it in the promised land. And, and it's easy to think, wow, what a sad pressing into his life. And, and so I want you to remember, though, that 
um, that this passage we're looking at today is asking us to kind of widen our lens as we look at life so that you get far enough back that you can now see the rest of eternity in, in what we're looking at. And, and I don't, um, do you know the next time that Moses is mentioned in Scripture? The next time he's actually seen in Scripture anyway? I mean, just throw your hand up if you know. It took me a while to realize this. Okay, good. I'm not that far behind you. Um, the Mount of Transfiguration. In, in Matthew 7, 1 through 3, uh, let me read this to you. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with, to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And it's a strange thing. We're always focused on Jesus here, which is usually the right thing to do, right? Um, and, and yet there's this odd thing that Moses is talking to Jesus. How does Moses even know Jesus, right? And, and yet here is this man who died, you know, some great number of years earlier. And, and Moses, you know, ultimately never gets to enter the promised land. But, but in death, he enters into the presence of God, of the Holy Spirit, of Christ. And Moses gets to see this plan of redemption unfolding, to, to see the glorified God on the mountain before Christ is going to go to the cross to die, not only for the, the sins of the people from that point forward, but for Moses himself. And so Moses never got to walk into the promised land, but, but he continues to walk with the Lord even in, in death, and, and you too can walk with the Lord for all of eternity. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 25, uh, Jesus is there talking to a woman named Martha. Her brother Lazarus has just died. Uh, she is absolutely heartbroken in tears. And, and Jesus comes up to her, and, and one of the things he says to her is this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he's talking about eternity there. And then he asked her this question. He asked Martha, do you believe this? How we answer that question there is everything. It's everything. I mean, if you want to know about the questions of the world, just go ahead and throw everything out. This is the question to deal with. Do you believe this? You know, not, not just in the way that we officially, intellectually answered either. But, but the way that we answer it in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, and the way we, we answer it so that it affects the way we live the rest of today and tomorrow and the days after that. And, and Martha responds to Jesus by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Let me, let me say this. If that's not your response today, let's talk because you need to know how you're going to answer that question. Or talk to any other Christian that you know in your life, that God has put into your life. Just start asking them some questions. Ask all the hardest questions you want. I mean, you can go against Christianity. Ask all the doubts, all the things that sound ridiculous to you, all your skeptical questions. Ask them. Any Christian who knows the Lord would be more than excited to, to, to handle those questions. Do that. You've got to find answers out for this. On the other hand, if your response is the same as Martha, let the shortness of our lives and the truth of the gospel shape our days. Not just in those moments of fear when you think you might have some disease, you know, when you spent too much time on WebMD for 
some weird bump on your arm, whatever it might be. But, but let these like really shape your life. You know, Christian, live each day in, in light of eternity. And so I, I want to end on this, this, this quote. Um, it, it's just a daily reminder. This is one of those quotes that I've seen in a few people's houses before, and I love it because um, it brings everything into perspective. And it's by C.T. Studd. He says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord, the rest of this day is not promised, and yet you may grant some of us a hundred more years. In the scheme of eternity, neither of those is very long. God, teach us to number our days so that we can live our lives with a heart of uh, seeking after godly and biblical wisdom. And again, may our hope and confidence in the steadfast love of God for us in the heart of the gospel give life as it flows through us like blood through our veins. Lord, would your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.